This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Heartland Seuss Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. There is a lot going on in the states and at the federal level on energy, environment, and climate policy. In its waning days, Texas is considering several bills to correct the issues which led to wintertime power shortfalls and blackouts during the winter two years ago that cost more than 200 lives. And at the federal level, the Biden administration is pushing a new power plant plan, power plant plan, say that three times fast, that will evidently require most fossil fuel power plants to install and operate carbon capture and storage technology on a very abbreviated time scale or shut down. On a positive note, House Republicans have included a rollback of much of the green energy subsidies contained in the laughingly titled Inflation Reduction Act as part of their bills to raise the debt ceiling. I've long had ties to the Texas Public Policy Foundation, having worked with their staff and scholars uh, as a senior senior fellow at one time on research and policy for more than two decades. They are my go-to sources for energy and environmental policy in Texas and increasingly with its life-powered initiative on federal issues. The Honorable Jason Isaac is a fourth-generation Texan. I beat him there. I'm fifth. (laughs) And a former four-term Texas House of Representatives. I didn't beat him there. He's the king. (laughs) Where uh, he served on energy resources and environment regulation committees, among others. Upon leaving House service, Jason became director of Life Powered, a project of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, to discuss that, Texas power bills, the EPA's newest overreaching power plan, and the House debt ceiling green funding rollbacks, that's why he's here. We're honored to have him. Jason, thanks for being with us. Sterling, great to be on. Thanks for having me. So, Jason, before we jump into Texas Power, the EPA, and the debt ceiling, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to work at TPPF, and what Life Powered is. Well, sure. Thanks, Sterling. Appreciate it. You, you covered the fact that I don't know about being the king because I served in the legislature, <laughs> more like the, the maybe king of glutton for punishment, because uh, that is certainly true. I did it for four terms, eight years and uh, term limited myself uh, because I, I learned the hard way that not being independently wealthy or retired is, is a hard way to make a living in the legislature when you're getting paid $600 a month or per diems when you're in session. But yeah. before that, and, and actually during my service, I was in sales and marketing. I worked in the tr- trucking industry, marketing technology to trucking companies and and switched to marketing fuel to trucking companies. Uh, and that's kind of where I got my first foray into being interested in, in running for office at some point in time as I saw that there were these policies that were being pushed in the domes, uh, not only in the state, but at the federal level that were having an impact on my ability to provide for my family. So I thought I'd run for office and try to get government out of the way. And boy, in office, it was really hard to provide for my family. <laughs> uh, and then my interest in environmental policy and energy policy is 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 really kind of one of the same in that we're world leaders on both of those fronts in the United States. And that's something that 
conservatives, in my opinion, 10, 12 years ago, weren't doing a good job of telling the story about our work as conservationists and truly protecting the land uh, and improving the environment as we produced our economic prosperity and increased our economic prosperity. So I got involved with that in the legislature, and that became my passion during my my four terms, serving on the Environmental Regulation Committee and Energy Resources Committees. Uh, and so I just had this incredible opportunity to join the foundation right as I was finishing my fourth term and learning about this life-powered project, which had previously been known as Fueling Freedom and this effort to really push back against the Obama administration's clean power plan, which here we are again. It's deja vu all over again. Now with the the Biden administration doing the same thing, but we've really not only become this reach in Texas, but we have this national reach. We work with policymakers at the federal level and our short mission statement is to try to to raise America's energy IQ. And the longer one is to make the connection between access to affordable, reliable energy and human flourishing. So we've we've had a a lot of fun doing that since uh, almost five years that I've been here now. Uh, but I think some of our best work that we're doing is in the classroom. We have a, a, a relatively new initiative called Classroom Powered that we've launched just in the last year. We have a full-time energy education coordinator, Courtney, that works with us that is working to improve education K-12, through whether it's reading comprehension, telling good stories about energy production uh, in this state and in this country. And so that's that's fantastic. Uh, updating the standards of which kids are going to be taught to uh, because they're going to be tested on. We've done some incredible work with the Texas Education Agency, the State Board of Education here in Texas, uh, and now are starting to reach out to other states to get curriculum that aligns with the state standards in classrooms. Uh, And really excited that this summer we'll have our first Summer STEM Energy Institute in Midland in July. And not not the you know the, the the place you'd think the teachers would want to go in the middle of the summer, oh, yeah. uh, but they do. And we had 20 spots to fill, and we had 38 teachers apply for this summer STEM Energy Institute, where they're going to spend three days in the energy capital of the world, learning about energy produced in this state, uh, and, and then be able to take that information back into their classrooms. So they're going to get drilling rig tours, they're going to get gas pro- uh, compression facility tours processing facilities and get to meet with some of the the leaders in the industry uh, just on all energy produced in this state and they're going to get to learn it in an unbiased fashion which i think is important for kids because there's so many jobs that are open uh, around the state in energy production and they're really well-paying jobs and unfortunately when i go to some of these sites i see out-of-state license plates and i'd rather see more in-state uh, license plates. And so that's what we're going to do to prepare kids for prosperity, not for poverty, like I think some of our public education policies are doing now. Uh, and so we're working on that. And that's really exciting. Well, now, uh, it's, I want to go back to something you said. So you had uh, 38 teachers and 20 slots. Did did y'all consider or did you say, you know what, there's so much demand and we want to reach as many as possible. We're going to, we're going to go up to the, the additional 18 slots so we can get these kids taught we are working on adding a second institute now it's something that the texas public policy foundation we have an incredible events team that works here that helps us prepare these events we've done a summer civics institute for for years now and so really modeled after that uh, that's something that has expanded outside of austin and now has done in multiple cities around the state 
And so we're looking at possibly doing that in more cities uh, around the state because there are so many that are energy is so important to them, whether it's upstream, midstream or downstream. Yep. Uh, energy is incredibly important all over this entire state. So, yes, we're, we're looking at doing some additional uh, institutes, which will be really fantastic. Good, good. Glad to hear it. If I can ever be of any help, if you need extra speakers or something, look me up. You know, I'm Will just, do. Just up the road in Dallas. That's right, yes. So, Jason, in the aftermath of the deadly winter Texas blackouts and repeated power shortfall warnings during the summer since then, there's been a concerted demand for action by the legislature here in Texas. Currently, there are a couple of bills. I don't know if you'd call them competing bills, but they are quite different. One of them passed the Senate unanimously. I'm not sure about Senate Bill uh, 6, whether it passed unanimously, but I know uh, 12 did. What would these bills do? How are they different? Why do you think one is better than the other at solving the problems uh, without ladling additional cost on ratepayers and taxpayers? And uh, it's a it's a heavily packed question, but what are their prospects? Yeah, and I think the two bills that we've been following primarily are Senate Bill Six and Senate Bill Seven. Uh, yeah, Senate, Senate Bill Six is one that yeah. just recognizes that there's a problem. We don't have enough reliable electric generation in the state of Texas. We need about 10 more gigawatts, which would expand our reliable thermal generation by about 12 to 15 percent, something that is we've seen reducing over the last decade. You've seen a reduction in reliable thermal generation because it can't compete against the heavily subsidized wind and solar, which has grown. I think the numbers are over 300 percent in the last seven years. It's astronomical. It now is 40 percent of our grid is this uh, unreliable wind or solar generation for electricity that has no reliability requirements whatsoever ever so senate bill six is 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 basically this hey we've got to compete with the federal subsidies so we're going to have a state program and the state's going to fund and build 10 gigawatts of quick start natural gas generation placed around the state uh, it, it's it's more market distortion, unfortunately, but again, it recognizes that there's a problem and a need, and we we really need more thermal generation. And so, if we can't correct the market, this may be something that we have to do in order to save this state, because we could continue down the path or go down the path that Germany and the United Kingdom have gone down, and that's deindustrialization, and that doesn't work out too well for anyone. The other one, Senate Bill 7, is is this unique approach that we've been working on now for, I believe, four years here at the foundation. It includes a a term called grid firming, and it's telling your variable sources of generation to firm up their capacity that during the peak hours of generation, during the peak hours of demand, that their, their capacity, their electric generation meet their average generation. That's it. Not their installed capacity like like natural gas and coal and nuclear do. During the 100 peak hours of any given year, those thermal sources of generation, natural gas, coal, and nuclear, will be at 98% reliable. That's the average. Incredibly, incredibly reliable. Wind and solar, not so much. They're around 20% reliable. So all we're saying is just come up and meet your average during those peak demand periods. And what that would do is it would force them to become reliable. And they're either going to have to contract with or build, which would ultimately be quick start natural gas generation here in Texas uh, or, or work with an existing power plant to expand its footprint. 
And that would mean that we would have more reliable thermal generation on the grid in Texas. Uh, and that would send signals to other market participants that, hey, maybe it's time to build new natural gas or coal-fired generation or maybe new nuclear. The regulatory hurdles there are, are unbelievable. Sure. Uh, but hopefully we'll we'll see some more of that over the coming years. Let me, let me interject a, a bit here. So um, I know one coal plant, because uh, we're going to get into the carbon capture and storage in a bit, that used to do carbon capture and storage, shipped it to the oil fields where they used it for um, – for, uh, you know, um, the enhanced oil recovery, right? Enhanced oil recovery. And it closed when prices crashed. And now with CC, you know, with, with Biden's bill, they're talking about reopening it. My question is this. Um, this is what I thought they should have done way back, you know, three, four years ago. You end all the, the tax breaks and everything that uh, renewable generators get at the local level. And then you say you can you 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 can operate on the grid. We got no problem with that. But you've got to pay for your back. This is essentially what this bill does in a different fashion. But you got to pay for for backup capacity because it's not just peaking times when these are a problem. They fluctuate year round. Mm-hmm. And um, and one of the reasons so much uh, reliable baseload has gone offline is because when they're operating well. They're selling power to our grid at below market prices, uh, sometimes below zero, because of their federal subsidies, and they're shutting down baseload power plants. And I'm wondering why we don't just say your subsidy goes now directly to the baseload power plants to keep them operating in times when uh, they're not providing much power. You know, it's it's uh, you can't operate a hotel if you only have if you're only operating 20 percent of the time or uh, during peak season, and you can't operate a power plant that way. And why, so why don't we just say you get all this largesse, you're going to be sharing the wealth because you're going to be keeping these plants online mm-hmm. to regulate the power running through the grid when you're operating but fluctuating and to replace it when you go to zero. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what we need. We, we, we need that. We've got to offset these federal subsidies. It'd be nice if we just had a, a complete 100% counter subsidy that, hey, whatever you get from the federal government, we're going to essentially charge you here in Texas and we're going to put it towards reliability. That's a form of cost allocation, which is also in, in Senate Bill 7 that says that if you're if you don't build new reliable generation to back up your variable, then you're going to pay a, a essentially a fee or a fine into a reliability bucket, which will go to other generators to increase their capacity or build new uh, generation. Yeah. But you're, you're right. And they do. They sell it a negative. Uh, the, the winter storm Uri that we had the Saturday before the storm that started, it was it started getting cold Sunday night. And that we started seeing the issues about 12, 15 a.m., which was technically Monday morning. But that Saturday, just just a day before, spot prices were zero on the grid. How does natural gas and coal and nuclear make money Yeah. when, when at zero? You can't. And then the Saturday after the storm, which really ended on Thursday, just two days later, spot prices went negative. And, and that's that's where that's why we've seen a early retirement of natural gas and coal. Yep, we're seeing the ESG movement attack reliable thermal generation. You've got this political agenda that's being pushed by financial uh, institutions 
companies that they invest in, like AEP out in East Texas, they've got the Perky Power Plant. It's not in the ERCOT market, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. Yep. It's just the adjoining grid and that serves East Texas and Arkansas and other states and the Southwest Power Pool. They're getting pressure to early retire this so they can say they've decarbonized. It's just absolutely silly. That's madness. 22 years yeah. of useful life left on this power plant. And it's madness because it doesn't do anything to mitigate a changing climate. But <laughs> And then you sacrifice 350 jobs at this coal, at the coal mine that's adjoining the power plant. Yeah. You just destroy an East Texas community while you slowly destroy all the other ones that have been benefiting benefiting from this reliable electricity. Yeah, well, It's almost just... like a plan. Like this decarbonization, I say, is to really dehumanize because that's what it leads to. It's dangerous and deadly. Well, yeah, no, look, if, if, we, if we go to net zero, we're going to be talking about our emissions equaling what they were probably around the 1820s. Modern society with, uh, you know, 250 million more people than were in uh, America in the 1820s or more, um, you can't run it that way. Uh, I, I'm not building an outhouse. I wouldn't, frankly, be able to... Uh, get the uh, permits to build the outhouse <laughs> to go back to that, right? You just, it, it's madness. They, they want us, uh, there's a group called Earth First. I don't know if they're still around or very active, but back in the 80s and 90s, they were very active. And their motto was back to the Pleistocene. And that's what these guys are really shooting for is back to the 1820s emission levels. That's crazy. Yeah, and Jane Goodall, with the world speaking at the World Economic Forum a couple of years ago, says that our our planet needs to get to a population that it had in the 1500s, yeah. which is a 95% reduction from where it is today. If that doesn't tell you what their motives are, uh, I don't know what will, but they really do think that humans are the problem. And it's it's really unfortunate because you look at places like here in the United States where world leaders in clean air, we're number one when it comes to access to clean and safe drinking water. There are 2.1 billion people, nearly – a quarter of the world's population don't have access right. to clean drinking water, and they live lives that are 20 to 30 years shorter than what we can experience here in the United States. And energy is the key to ending that poverty. Yeah. No, as, as I, I, he's probably our mutual friend, as my, my friend Rob Bradley says, it's the master resource, right? Mm-hmm. It is, absolutely. So um, what are the prospects for these bills here in Texas? Well, if you'd asked me a couple of days ago, I'd have said I was cautiously optimistic that we were going to get some sort of firming requirement passed or some sort of cost allocation done. I think it's going to be probably one of the hostages that gets killed. Excuse the the analogy there. Uh, at the end of the legislative session, as we're we're nearing uh, about what's 17 days left in the legislative session, uh, and deadlines are passing of when bills can be passed. And I just don't see any movement on Senate Bill 7 in the House. Uh, the chairman of the State Affairs Committee was overheard over a live mic saying that, you know, typically at the end of a committee, you leave a bill pending. And he said, we're going to leave this pending. And then he muttered left for dead. Uh, so that what? Was, wasn't too promising there. So I really think this is going to be. Uh, one of these things, it's going to it's going to be forced into a special session to get this done. Uh, for some reason, the legislators don't understand the severity of this. They don't understand that electricity costs across this country have increased 30 percent. Uh, I'm sorry, 15 percent 
in the last two years alone. Uh, and it's the disconnects from electricity that are up 30% over the last two years. Natural gas disconnects are up 76%. And two years ago, it was one in six Americans, one in six Americans that could expect over a 12-month period a disconnect notice from utility. And those numbers are massively increasing, and that's just crushing. It's crushing everyone, but it's really crushing the least among us Can you- uh, more, more than anyone else. Can you speculate as to why he would say that? Why why they they are pushing this off? Because I got to tell you, so when Senate Bill Seven um, when it passed the Senate, it passed unanimously. Every Democrat in the Senate voted for this. We were shocked when that happened. We now, were absolutely shocked. If you can pass a bill, honestly, any bill in the Texas Senate unanimously. I would have thought it would just sail through the House. Uh, so what – why are these bills running into such complications? I, I would say Texas is known as being the number one state for wind production of electricity. Uh, and so we are a, a, a strong state when it comes to these unreliable sources of electricity. And with that comes a very strong lobby. And that's why I was shocked this passed the Senate without opposition because it does put cost. It allocates cost to unreliable sources of generation, namely wind and solar. And so for that to come out of the Senate, it was just it's like, wow, the Senate, every every single member understands how important this is yeah. that when we're going to put – when you're going to have an electric generator that's going to be part of our grid, then they're going to have to be held to a reliability standard. And so when these woke companies come out and say they're 100% renewable, I, I wish there was a law that said, well, if you make that statement, you have to get off the grid. Because it's it's absolutely not true. It started with, well, I don't know if it started with, but I remember you know, Anheuser-Busch, this Bud Light controversy isn't the first time they've gone woke. It's the, it's the one that backfired the most. But years ago during the Super Bowl, like, oh, we're, we're going to be 100% renewable and they had some goal on there and just, you know, showing all these windmills. Yeah. I could care less about the environment, but they they want to destroy the earth to save the planet. Uh, and, and that's what they're doing. And unfortunately, they have a really strong lobby. And I guess that they're just stopping this cost allocation from passing in the House. It's been really tough in the House in the past. Two years ago, the Senate did pass it uh, with stronger language in there, directing the Public Utility Commission to have grid reliability, to firm up the generation. And the House stripped that language out and basically said it's a may, the Public Utility Commission may do this. And they, they're continuing to ignore Governor Abbott's directive that tells them to push those costs on unreliable sources of generation. Yeah, It's really frustrating. So, so the governor gets it, uh, the, the lieutenant governor gets it, Everybody gets it, but evidently the people in the House that maybe are <sighs> people who help fund their campaigns are against it. Yeah, uh, and it's 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 really unfortunate because – well, and if there were some people that got it a couple of years ago yeah. and that now don't get it anymore because it's <laughs> these large corporations that are so heavily invested in wind and solar. Yeah. Uh, that they're – because they're recognizing, wait, we can make money – on all these subsidies. That's why you have oil and gas companies getting into this, this absolutely worthless, meaningless carbon capture uh, because they increase the subsidies from $50 a ton, a metric ton or a 
yeah, $50 a ton of a tax credit to now $85 direct payment cash. Yeah. And so now it's you've got these major, you know, national multinational oil and gas companies that are just chasing these subsidies and it's just it's really really disappointing. It's like, you know, I, I don't have many good things to say about Karl Marx. Uh, but he was actually uh, pretty insightful in some respects. And one of the, one of his famous statements is, "Capitalists will sell you the rope used to hang them," and that's <laughs> and that's what's going on here, right? It really is. Yeah, it's it really is. It's unfortunate. But it's not even capitalism. These are crony capitalists. This this, this that, isn't capitalism. This yeah, it's corporate welfare. It's crony yeah. capitalism. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So moving on to federal matters. Uh, for weeks now, Capitol Hill rumor mill touted the forthcoming EPA power plan. It's now out. Uh, and it, uh, it will force, I believe, the closure of reliable and expensive fossil fuel power generation in the U.S. by requiring a technology called carbon capture and storage that has failed everywhere it has been tried. It's been tried. It's been subsidized heavily by the federal government. It's never worked. But now it's considered the best available technology. They've got to install it. So what are the dangers of the EPA's new bill? Uh... What's the problem it's trying to fix? And uh, do you think uh, this will stand up to scrutiny? You know, I know states are going to challenge it in court. I know industry is going to challenge it in court. Um, so what do you think? Yeah, and, and this is just another egregious abuse of the Environmental Protection Agency, unelected bureaucrats, where they've already had their hands slapped by the Supreme Court in the West Virginia versus EPA case. Uh, and I think this is going to get litigated as well. And just like net zero, it'll never happen. So they can try as as much as they want that this this won't happen. Just like net zero won't happen, it's impossible. But you're right. There's the Texas Clean Energy Project. There's the Future Gen 2.0. American Electric Power Mountaineer canceled a project in 2011 in West Virginia. Uh, Southern Company's Kemper project was canceled in 2017. The, uh, these are all projects that have been started, spent millions of dollars, and canceled, much like the Petronova project in Texas that you yeah. mentioned earlier about right. this capturing the CO2 from a direct stream of oil or, or from a coal-fired power plant and using that for enhanced oil recovery. That was suspended in 2020, citing high costs. Imagine that you do something that is so unnecessary. Uh, and I know I think the Wall Street Journal wrote an article in the last couple of weeks talking about Occidental Petroleum and their efforts and how for they're at about five hundred dollars per ton of cost. When the Biden administration says there's a fifty seven dollar social cost of carbon. So why are they then subsidizing up to one hundred and eighty dollars per ton for direct air capture? If it's only 57 in cost, why would you give someone three times that amount yeah. to capture it? Now, I, I'm one of those that believe there's a social benefit to carbon right. uh, and that I think that this is a ploy by the government to, to do this. And then in 10 years, come in and say, you know what, you've got to increase your CO2 emissions. So we're going to charge you a low CO2 tax. <laughs> Um, and, and basically everyone's going to be paying. There you uh, go. Which, you go. It, I mean, you look at what's happened on our planet. Our planet is greening because of increased concentrations of CO2, which are still 
uh, in the geological history, very, very low, which I, I love to tell people it's 0.04% of our atmosphere. And if you're truly concerned about warming, then you should be going for net zero H2O because it's a much more warming gas. Uh, and, and I don't see people advocating for taking dams down to stop all the humidity in Austin. Uh, but that's what happens. You evaporate more water in Austin than what is consumed by the, the city of Austin and the residents that live here. Uh, but I, I, I digress. This is going nowhere. But unfortunately, it's sending signals to the market yeah. that this is what you have to do. And so that's why you're going to see fewer and fewer people invest in companies, invest in new natural gas or coal-fired generation because they're like, well, the costs are too high. You can't make any money doing it unless you have direct you know, carbon capture. And that's not worth it. But that's and really so, the goal, right? I mean, yeah. that's, let's be honest. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah. Biden, Biden wanted cover for for ending fossil fuel use. And so he says, we gave him an option. It's great technology. We gave him the option. It's not our fault they can't make them work. We wanted to have union jobs building this carbon capture technology. We, you know, we wanted good American jobs. And, and these these selfish companies just won't do it. And so they're going out of business. But that's their fault. Uh, you know. The, yeah, and, and sorry, physics. your electric prices are up. And exactly. if you don't have electricity anymore. Don't blame blame it yeah. on me. It's these greedy corporations. Greedy that, corporate. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. sorry, your meat all thawed out in your freezer because the power didn't run during the middle of winter in Texas. Oh um, no, you won't you won't have meat either because they're going after farming <laughs> and agriculture as well. And that yeah. was something that kind of caught me off guard. I had an interview on Fox Business and. Uh, Liz McDonald mentioned that, and I'm like, gosh, I was just talking about this because we see the ESG movement, this environmental, social, and corporate governance movement, not only attacking responsible American energy producers, they're going after our food supply, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's all part of the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Plan is to starve us and freeze us. Well, yeah, because they want to go back to, you know, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Jane Goodall. Look, my PhD is in applied philosophy, environmental ethics. And back when I was still in school, one of the one of the philosophers we studied was a guy named Sven Arrhenius. Uh, I think he's Swedish or Swiss. Um, and he wrote a you know he wrote uh, eloquently you know a number of articles. Uh, he may have even published a couple of books where he talked about the ideal human population on Earth. Uh, he wasn't anti-human. He said he he just thinks that there's carrying capacity and the ideal human population happened to be 200 million people. It's like, it's like, uh, let's see how you get there from here. Right. Um, I have a, I had a feeling when I read his stuff that I knew which people were going to be among those 200 million people and which ones weren't. Uh, so it's, it, it's madness, but it is what it is, what it is. You know, I looked into some of this stuff, even if you could get through all the hurdles of carbon capture, right. You could, you could get all the stuff installed. Well, you've still got to have the transport, right? The pipelines where you ship the natural gas, I mean, the, mm -hmm. the CO2 to the secure storage, uh, underground storage. And of course, we can't get a single pipeline or electric line built in less than 10 years now. So how this is going to happen, I don't know. The, thou you know, the thousands that we're going to have to build, thousands of miles. Yeah, to give you an idea, in the U.S., we produce 34 trillion cubic feet of natural gas annually, and that's we need more natural gas pipelines as it is right now. To even reduce half of our CO2 emissions and move them and store them, it would be 50 trillion cubic feet. Yeah, 
and and that, that's just half, and that's just building, and 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 that's just the pipelines. My other concern is, you know, a few years back, I can't find the study now, but they calculated whether there was enough storage capacity, and and by storage capacity, I mean secure, because remember, this has got to be permanently stored. It can't leach back out over time, or it defeats the purpose. So we don't have that capacity; it doesn't exist. Uh, when when they when they ship it to oil. Um, for enhanced recovery, they're not pretending. I don't think that once they pump the CO two down there, it stays there forever. No. <laughs> uh, so you're not putting it in old oral reservoirs. You have to have specific types of underground um, uh, areas. It shouldn't be at a water table. It shouldn't be in an aquifer because that'll acidify the water. Mm-hmm. Um, it shouldn't be in salt domes because they can crack. You can't be geologically active, then it just all comes back up. There were a couple of uh, there were a couple of places where they tried this, and they had so-called secure locations, and then the pressure from the CO two made them less secure. Suddenly, there were cra- cracks formed, and the CO two started leaking out. So, uh, I don't think it's the case that they haven't thought this through. I think they they understand exactly what they're doing. It was never intended. As a serious option, they just want to shut down coal and natural gas. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. Um, well, I won't say one man's opinion then. It's two men, two, two, two men's <laughs> yeah. opinion then. Yeah, and, and they want to get rich while they're doing it too. And they want to get rich while oh, they're doing out it. Out of our pockets. So yeah, you took- pay for higher energy prices out of one pocket. They're taking the money out of our other pocket for subsidies. Utilities are more than happy to build whatever this government tells them to build as far as power plants, so long as they get cost plus. Yes. Cost plus 10%, cost plus 15%. And when it fails, they'll just blame the government. This is what they told us we had to build. Yeah. Our engineers said it was sort of stupid, but, uh, you know, that's what the government said. Anyway. Um, so, Jason, moving on to another topic. The U.S. House recently passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling, which Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate has said is dead on arrival. And the president said he was veto. Now, to be clear, if the debt ceiling is not raised by a specific date, contrary to mainstream media reporting, the U.S. will not necessarily default on its debt. They have options to cut funding to discretionary programs while making while continuing to met, make debt payments. Uh, as far as Congress is concerned, that option doesn't exist or it's the end of the world. Uh, what do House Republicans want to roll back, and why would these rollbacks be good for the average American? What green programs in the laughingly called Inflation Reduction Act? Uh, yeah, they, the, are, the Green New targeting? Deal, in yeah. other words. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's what it was. It was the Green New Deal. Make no mistake about it. They just rebranded it and called it something else to sound good, which was a complete misnomer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if this debt ceiling isn't passed or approved, the debt ceiling increase isn't approved, then I, I assure you that the president will order parks to be closed and, and want to pin that on Republicans. Yeah. They'll probably shut down some of the monuments around D.C. so the, the CNN can get some good pictures and get some good video of the, the sad kids that have shown up to see their, 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 their capital and can't get in because the debt ceiling hasn't been increased. If they could shut down some executive offices and the IRS and a few other select agencies, I might be all for this. Uh, Yeah, the Department of Education, the Fed, the EPA, the Department of Energy. The ATF. (laughs) I can think of quite a few agencies that if if the debt ceiling doesn't pass, 
uh, if they have to keep paying that debt, I'm all for it. Yes, because you got to find the money somewhere. But really, it's it's Republican efforts to roll back some of these market distorting policies that the uh, four hundred billion dollars in the Green New Deal that have now come out and said there's going to be cost estimates that it's well over a trillion dollars. It's not four hundred billion. It's over, I think, one point four trillion was the last numbers that I've seen. So you even have the the leftist media reporting this that hey, those cost estimates were were way off but really force more subsidies to the market, which is going to increase unreliable electric generation. It's going to increase the cost on batteries. So it's a it's the China Green New Deal because we know where this technology is made. We know where it comes from, that over 80% of the mines that mine the materials in Africa are owned by Chinese communist companies. Oh, but uh, wait, Jason. I, I remember – Distinctly reading in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act where it's a, a Build America program where they have to have uh, labor and materials all produced in the U.S. Uh, how could that be? Oh, they're getting waivers, much like the, uh, the, the, the state of Texas with <laughs> some of our incentive programs where all these companies got waivers for jobs requirements. Now you're getting waivers for solar panel equipment uh, products that are manufactured overseas. Uh, it, and it's just the EV a, chargers. The big uh, one was the EV yes. chargers, oh, right? Yeah. He EV wants to charge. build uh, what is it, five thousand EV chargers across the nation, but they were all going to be American. And the first time that bumped up against the uh, the deadline, he waived it and he said, yeah. "No, no, we got to import these for now." Yeah, and f- well, meanwhile, Ford's losing over sixty thousand dollars per electric vehicle electric that they're truck, selling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and exactly. you and I are heavily subsidizing those. We're going to have some research coming out here in the next few weeks. I hope it's finished by then that talks about the cost and how much you and I that may drive internal combustion engines or even hybrid electric vehicles, how much we're subsidizing pure electric vehicles. When the chairman of Toyota came out and said the components that go in one electric vehicle, he could build over 60 hybrid electric vehicles that would be more efficient, that would save people more money. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're concerned, well, at least they're virtue signaling, they're concerned about re- reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I could care less about that. I, I love it that the Politico and other left-wing media call it climate pollution. I'm like, that's so funny. CO2 and water vapor are now climate pollution. Yeah, Their messaging is just awful, but they're trying to brainwash people uh, and they've done a pretty good job of it. And so it's fun to be on the other side, pushing back into reality and with optimistic messaging about uh, a high carbon lifestyle, which I love to live. And the Toyota guy, right? So he says we could build 60 hybrids for the cost of one electric. Yeah, the components. What he he didn't say is he could build 120 or 200 regular cars for the cost of either one. <laughs> and more importantly, make a profit on the uh, regular cars. Absolutely. As and reduce to losses the on cost. Yes. Yeah. And reduce the cost yeah. of vehicles. They're absolutely, it, they're increasing. And that's why people are driving older, less reliable, less safe cars, because the federal government is trying to dictate what it is that we purchase, what it is that we drive, how we get to and from work into the grocery store and then the groceries that we buy. Uh, And it's just I hope people are kind of waking up and realizing that the direction that we're heading is not the right direction. Well, you'd like to think. Jason, big picture. If you make just one point, what's the most important single point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion about energy in Texas and the nation today? 
I'd say just question everything. I do. I begin my talks by introducing myself. I say, hi, I'm Jason Isaac. I live a high carbon lifestyle. And I wish the <laughs> and I wish the rest of the world could too, because it's truly where you have economic prosperity and environmental leadership. And I I, share, I love to share the story about Sri Lanka. In 2019, the president of Sri Lanka, the, the or then candidate, he ran as the first ever net zero candidate on the face of the earth. And in 2019, Sri Lanka was on this path to prosperity. They were exporting tea, they were exporting rice, and when you're exporting goods that your country produces, you're becoming more and more wealthy, at the at the at, you know because of other people's money coming into your country incredibly beneficial to the people of Sri Lanka. Well, this person got elected. One person made a decision to ban the use and importation of nitrogen or fossil fuel-based fertilizer in 2020. In one year, food production decreased 40%. The cost of food went up 80%. And today, nine in 10 families in Sri Lanka are dealing with hunger on a daily basis because of a politician that made a policy to go to net zero. They even had the highest ESG reading, ESG reading, uh, yeah, yeah, rating of any country on the face of the earth. That's because they, what they want is people in poverty, except for the elites. They always exempt themselves. I, I would point out that that one man who made that one decision is no longer president. He's not. And when his in palace fact, was overrun, he fled say, the country. Yeah. And I love to tell people, guess where he went? Because he didn't go to Malawi that at the time was dealing with a cholera outbreak and still is. People are dying because the water is contaminated. But they're at net zero. That's this panacea that we're supposed to strive towards, death and destruction. No, he went to the highest per capita CO2 emissions on the face of the earth, Singapore. A clean environment with access to clean water and energy. No, and he shouldn't have been allowed in Singapore. He should be forced to go to Malawi and, and oh, see what his policies look you're, like. You're, you're, you're a kind man. I, I think, <laughs> I think uh, I, you know, I'm from the the West. As I said, my, my family's been here five generations. Uh, I've seen pictures of uh, vigilante justice in the old West. I think that's what should have happened to this guy, hanging from a lamppost. Uh, as it was, his, ha- his well, home his home was decarbonizes. Yeah, his home was <laughs> yeah exactly. His home was burned. He, it's not like he was uh, ousted through an election or even a coup. <laughs> he just got got uh, run out on a rail. And uh, now the guy that came in after him, I don't know what's happened there, but I would suspect that tops on his list would be rescinding those policies. Let's hope so because the I, but I don't I'm not optimistic because the World Trade Organization and the World Economic Forum have come to the rescue of Sri Lanka and now are financially bailing them out much like they're going to do uh, with the, the Dutch farmers yeah. that offering to buy their farmland uh, if if they'll decarbonize. And oh, to be fair, you say bailing them out. The Dutch farmers didn't need any bailing no, they did. They were doing well. They were selling their stuff all over Europe and the world, but the government had a different vision. And what's interesting about the Dutch farmers, they want to pay them, I think it's 120% for their land and, and, and assets. But then they say, but they can't move anywhere and become farmers again. I don't know how you stop that. If I'm a Dutch farmer and I know it's going this direction, I take my payment and migrate to America or mm-hmm. someplace else, and I become a farmer there. What are they going to do? Claw back the money that I'm now 
uh, put into dollars. I That's the kind of immigration we need in this country. Good, hardworking food producers like that that are being demonized around the earth. And we need to stop the World Economic Forum. Uh, I think Elon tweeted out something recently talking about how this unelected organization is trying to rule the world yeah. and it needs to stop. Yeah. Well, Jason, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you on, for coming on the show on, beh on behalf of myself and our listeners. Sterling, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you and your leadership, and thank you for everything that Heartland does to help educate America's uh, people on the importance of energy in this country and around the world. Thank you. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of Jason Isaac and the entire Public Policy Foundation on a variety of issues, but especially, of course, their Life Powered Project. Please also continue to follow us as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. Also, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye.